Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6, say this. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. I've really appreciated the service this morning. I, I appreciated the worship, the songs that really focused me towards God and not on man. I, I appreciated the spirit of the, the, the call to worship and calling us to unity as the body. And then even with the announcements, uh, Scotty did a great job of bringing out the spiritual implications of announcements. I mean, how do you do that? Well, he did it. Uh, that we are a multi-generational church and everything that we do, whether it's an announcement about whatever, whatever event, but there's a purpose behind that because we are one and it gives all different ages an opportunity to connect and to be part of a greater body. So I, I just appreciated that. I also uh, know that today we have uh, parents here from Teen Challenge and it's good to see the boys too. Hey, let's give, let's give them a round of applause. Amen. And so those parents who have come from long distance to be with their son and have come to church today, we're just glad that you're here and just feel like you fit right in because you do. We feel the same way about your boys. Uh, we love them. We're glad that they're part of Vero Bible Fellowship. Today, I want you to take your Bible, if you will, and turn to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to continue in our study from this prison epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote uh, to the church at Philippi. Uh, chapter 2 of Philippians, where uh, the theme of this little book that Paul wrote, or this little letter that Paul wrote, is joy. And uh, we've even titled this series that we're in, uh, The Joy-Filled Life. And, and it's, it really is true that as a Christian, no matter what you're facing in life, no matter the good, the bad, the difficult, whatever, you should still have this inner joy that comes from an inner peace you have peace with God. You're in a relationship with Jesus, who is God. He lives in you, spiritually speaking. And, and this peace enables us to not only have joy, but it shows up in unity, that we are one. There's a unity in the body of Christ. So towards the end of chapter 1, which we studied the last time we were together before Palm Sunday, uh, Paul challenged. He challenged the church. And so let's go back to verse 27 in Philippians chapter 1, just real quick before we get into chapter 2. 
He said, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are, here it is, look, standing firm in one spirit. See the unity? With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul is challenging the church to be one, to serve one another, to work together for the cause of the gospel. And so this is why Paul says in chapter 2, if you want to turn to chapter 2, he's going to talk about the importance of unity. So he calls the church to stand in one spirit, strive with one mind, side by side for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you are faithful to Christ and the gospel of Christ, here's the deal. The reason why he's calling you to be one is because you're going to need it. If you're faithful to the gospel, you are going to be persecuted. You're going to be laughed at, mocked, ridiculed in this world. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to read the news and find out very quickly that Christianity is on the downswing in this country. And it's looked down upon by many in this country. They think it's a thing of the past. They think if you are a Bible-believing Christian, that you literally take this Bible to be your rule of faith. They think that you are Neanderthal. What is wrong with you? This is the 21st century. Get with the program, man. That's where the world is and how they see the church and how they see Christians. And yet, Jesus has called us to be salt and light, to go into this world and lovingly proclaim the good news of Jesus to this world, that he died on the cross to redeem man back to God, to redeem man from what? From his sinfulness. So the very message of love from God is not met by most people in this world with appreciation. They hate it. They hate it. And, and don't be surprised by that. Peter said this in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Now, fiery trial, he's speaking of persecution because of your faith. He says, why are you surprised? In other words, if it's not happening to you and you're a Christian, that is weird. There is something wrong with that. If you're a believer in Jesus, it, it, it goes with the territory. Not everybody's going to like you. In fact, in John chapter 7, verse 7, listen to what Jesus himself said. This is the Jesus that honestly, if you ask most people in the world who, who have heard of Jesus, they have a positive view of him. He's not a bad dude. He was a good guy, man. The guy did a lot of good things. We ought to try to remember him for the good things that he did. That's how they see him. Well, that's not the whole picture of Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible said in John 7, 7, the world hates me because I testify about their works that they are evil. So here you have Jesus who's telling the world, hey, say what you want, think what you want. The reality is you're sinners. You've committed sin. You were born into sin through Adam and Eve, and now you, you've committed acts of sin and attitude and behavior. You're a sinner. And, and he, because he says that, the world hates him. And then he would call out what sin is. That this is a sin. That's a sin. 
He said to the woman, remember when the guys, the Pharisees, brought this woman who had had an adulterous affair the night before. They found her in the affair. They yanked her up out of the bed and brought her at dawn to the temple square where Jesus was praying. And they threw her down in front of Jesus and said, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Moses said that we should stone her to death. That's what the law says. She needs to be stoned to death. What do you say? What's interesting is they actually, mocking him, said, Master, what do you say? What did Jesus say? Well, he didn't respond to them. He first responded to the woman. How? With love. He knelt down beside her. She's feeling the weight of shame and guilt, and she's out in the public square where these men are speaking loudly that others might hear, and he gets down next to her. And then he looks up at these men, and he says, let the one among you who has never sinned cast the first stone. And like attending a bad concert, people just kind of leave one at a time until there's nobody left in there and the band's playing to nobody. That's what happened. One by one, these men got up and left. Why? They had also sinned. And then Jesus, still kneeling down, says to the woman, where are those who want to condemn you? Don't they want to condemn you? And she lifts her eyes and looks maybe for the first time and looks around. Every one of them are gone. She said, I guess not. And then he said, neither do I. And then he said, so there's the love. But then he said to this woman, go and sin no more. Don't go back to adultery again. He loved her enough to care about her soul. That is the call of Christ for you and I to this world. We're to go into the world and we're to lovingly let people know that they're in sin. And that Christ can change them and he can transform them and give them salvation and life eternal. Even if they don't want to hear it. That's the command Jesus said later in John 15, he said, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. So if you're hated by the world because you lovingly shared the good news of Jesus, you're in good company. Jesus had the same experience as you. It really wasn't how you said it, that you said it the wrong way. Don't you think Jesus could probably say it the right way? And they still hated him just like they hate you. He went on, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Listen, church, I pray every one of you can grasp this. The gospel of Jesus Christ, in essence, when you share it, all of it, it's offensive to the world. It is not an easy message for anyone to hear. 
it's offensive because it will call you out on your sin. It will cause for those who God is calling a godly sorrow to come over them for their sinfulness. And that will lead to a true repentance of sin and a leaning into God who's calling them and believing upon Jesus and the work that he performed on the cross so that they could be forgiven. That's what the gospel does to those who are being saved. But those who are not being saved, it's, it's all-out war. They have a conflict with your words. They have a conflict with God, with the gospel. So 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. What does worldly grief look like? It would look like the woman who was caught in adultery saying, Oh, darn it, I got caught. She's only sorrowful over the fact that her sin was, was exposed. That's not what that woman experienced. I believe she experienced godly sorrow, not worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow says, I'm thankful that it came out because now I see the true reality of my condition. I'm lost in my sinfulness, and I need God. That's godly sorrow, and it leads to repentance. I have a deep concern for the church because the culture in which we live in this world has created selfish self-indulgent, egotistical, introverted, consumptive, materialistic people who only think of themselves. That's what the world's all about. This stuff is now spilling over into God's church. And the effects on the church are devastating. Even at Vero Bible Fellowship, those those worldly thoughts and attitudes and behaviors can come into our fellowship and they are extremely disruptive to the purpose of God and to the call of God on us to, to share the gospel and love one another. We see Christian people today who become angry and hostile towards one another in the church. I'm not talking about lost people. I'm talking about Christians Factions develop where groups of people stand in opposition to other groups. I pick my side. I'm with this group in the church, and somebody else, I'm with that group in the church, and we just don't see eye to eye, and blah, blah. And all it is is a faction. The church does battle against herself. This goes against everything that God stands for and why Christ died. The Bible says that the church belongs to Christ. He said, I'm, I'm building up my church. He's constantly wanting to build us up into him. But these things take us in the opposite direction. In some cases, some Christians try to bring a self-governing attitude into the church. Listen, that might work in a right governmental system. But it doesn't work in the church. There's no room for that. You, you've, you've been placed in the kingdom of God. So we should care, care very little about self-governing, and we should care a lot about loving others, seeking oneness with others, giving ourselves away for the sake of the gospel. That's what we ought to be about. Don't, don't get wrapped up in a warped pagan world with, that then you allow to inculcate the church. That's why we're called to purity. 
That's why we're called to be separate from the world. That's why we're called to be salt and light in the world. We don't fit in this world and in it, in its uh, system of beliefs. And the last thing we need is to fall into it and then bring it into the fellowship of God. There's no place for it. So we need to pray that God's Spirit would guide every single member of this fellowship to check their heart and see if there's any wickedness in us. Is there any fleshly desire in us? Is there any selfishness in us that's hindering the fellowship from being one? I'm not sharing this because we have a big problem right now at Bureau Bible Fellowship. If that's the case, I'm unaware of it. I'm sharing it because it's in the Bible. This is the beautiful thing about teaching verse by verse. If, if I taught topically from week to week, I would pick the subjects that I want to teach. But that's not what I do. I, I just take one verse at a time and break it down. That way I teach the whole counsel of God to you. And, and Paul is saying that one of the biggest uh, negative impacts on joy and on peace of God is disunity in the church. So he's calling us to this. So let's get into it, okay? Um, I, I want you to notice that what Paul's going to do at the beginning of chapter 1 in, verses, in verse 1 is he's turning our focus toward the necessity for the church to be unified. So first of all, I'm going to, he's going to give us the, the justification for the church needing to be unified, okay? So Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Now, he, he puts it in a, in a question, kind of like he suggests, if there is any encouragement in Christ. But he doesn't mean it that way. It actually means because there is encouragement in Christ, because there's comfort from love, because there's participation in the Spirit, because there's affection and sympathy. And then he goes on, complete my joy. It's going to make me joyful when I see these elements in the church. So let's break these down. The four reasons that Paul gives why the church of Jesus Christ, and we can even make it personal, why Vero Bible Fellowship needs to be unified. Number one, because there is encouragement in Christ. Because of the work of Christ in every believer's life, the past work of Christ, forgiving your past sins, and for your present sins and your future sins. Listen, Christ has done so much for you. Would you say amen to that? He's done so much for me. I am never, there's never a day I don't remember what I was before I was saved and what Jesus has done for me. And he's saying, so because of that, because of that, encourage one another. Be unified with others in the body of Christ. Number two, because there is comfort from love. In other words, because all of Christ's love and tender mercy and pity and sympathy and grace and forgiveness, and care, and comfort. He's lavished all this on us because of that. Can you not take all of that and give it to others as well? Can you not return all of that that Christ has given back to him? You say, how do I return it to him? By giving it to others. You know it brings glory to Jesus 
when the very things that he's done for us, we extend to others? Example? You need an example? Forgiveness. Are you not thankful that God has forgiven you of your sinfulness? And I'm not just talking about past sin here. I've committed a lot of past sins, but I commit sin in the present. I don't know about you. Some of you probably on your way to church today, somebody pulled out in front of you, they hit their brakes at the light and caused you to almost run in the back of them, and you let out an expletive that you shouldn't have let out, or the kids are screaming in the back seat of the car, going to church, and you had enough, and ah. you, you, we sin all the time. Probably before all of us get back to our house, on the way home, wrong thoughts will enter in. Somebody pulling out of the church parking lot cuts you off. Yeah! And you're going to sin in the future. All of that, Christ has forgiven you. Christ has covered your sinfulness on the cross so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see a sinner. He sees one who is righteous in Christ. That, that, that excites me. And because I know Jesus has forgiven me, guess what? I'm going to return forgiveness to him. How? I'm going to forgive others. I'm going to forgive them. That brings glory to the name of God when we live out what he has done for us. So because there is comfort and love, which we have, we've received. Amen? That's right. Number three, because there is participation in the Spirit. Participation in the Spirit. In other words, because of all the Spirit that the Spirit has done within, within us, what has He done? He's regenerated you. He's, sanctified, he's sanctifying you. He has gifted you. He, he, is, he has sealed you. The Holy Spirit in you is a guarantee, it's a pledge, it's a promise from God that you are saved and will be with the Father in eternity. Amen. He intercedes for you. He enables you to understand the truth. The Bible says that the Spirit of God will guide you into all truth. He fills you. He makes you fruitful. The works that you are able to do are because of the work of the Spirit in you. He strengthens you in the inner man to resist temptation. He provides power that you need in order to be a witness in this world. Because of all that the Spirit has done in you, it's right for you to have communion with one another, to walk in all of that, and let others be the beneficiary of that of your gifts, of the work of Christ, of the servant service heart that you carry. And then lastly, and I think this is important because there is affection and sympathy. Not only has he granted you power, but he's granted you affection, a sympathy for one another. You, you not only have the ability to serve one another, but you have the the the, the the ability to be tender, to care for one another. You have the ability to strive together with others. Not to be an island on your own, doing your own thing for the Lord. The Lord is not moved by that as much as he is what you do with others. 
That's the church. So the Holy Spirit longs for unity of the church. It's called the unity of the Spirit. In fact, it says in Ephesians 4, it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing one, with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. By the way, it's not Spirit, small s. That would be your Spirit. It's capital S. When you do all those things, it maintains the unity of the Holy Spirit in our church. And we do it in the bond of peace. So since the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit have done all this for us, who are we as unworthy sinners to hold back these things from others? See, when that happens, when my attitude changes and I only think about me and I stop thinking of others, now disunity comes into the body. Now factions start. Schisms can begin. We're not one. We need to see selfish sin for what it is. It quenches the Spirit of God in the church. It's an abuse of a relationship in which the Son of God and the Spirit of God give all to you, and, give, and then you give nothing back. God, help us to check every heart in this room of every member of this fellowship. Is my heart right with you, and is my heart right with others? Am I willing to let the Spirit of God use me in this fellowship to love others? See, after establishing the evidence for why it's possible to unify, now Paul next in verse 2, he, he switches it up and he says, now let's look at the outcomes of unity in the church. Now that you know we should have unity in the church, let me tell you what happens when you do have unity in the church. Verse 2, complete my joy by, here it is, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, and of one mind. This is what it looks like when the church is unified. These are the indicators, okay, of a unified church. Four signs or four indicators of spiritual unity in the church. Let me just break them down quickly. We're almost done. Don't worry. Number one, being of the same mind. That's what he said. What does that mean? Let me tell you simply what it means. It means thinking the same way. Being of one mind means thinking the same way. We're talking about every believer carrying a single passion for unity with no personal agenda, which results in one great group of people moving toward one eternal, glorious thing that God wants us to do. That's what God wants. Amen? But listen, church, if you bring discord to the church, you have sinned against Christ. You have sinned against the Holy Spirit. You need to see that for what it is. It's a violation of your relationship with God. Because God is giving you all these wonderful blessings of sympathy and compassion and love and forgiveness that you might share them with others. You see, that don't, don't misunderstand. Listen, being a Christian, first and foremost, is having a relationship with Jesus. It's having a relationship with God. And that relationship stays healthy when the things that he has given me so that I can have that relationship, I return to him. I give back to him by how I treat those in the church. In 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul said, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you, listen to this, 
that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. What does it mean to be, to be of the same mind? He's talking about attitudes. He's not talking about that we see everything the same way, like doctrinally. I mean, if I asked, what do you believe? What's your eschatology? Uh, what do you believe about the end times? We're going to get a whole plethora of answers in this room. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about every single buddy in the church ought to have the same mind, the same attitude. He's saying that we should all agree, no divisions, think the same way, have the same judgments. In other words, we want God to win. What does it mean to be of the same mind? That we all believe that we belong to the kingdom of God and we want that kingdom of God to advance in this world. So we're committed together to study and know the Bible. We're committed together to share Jesus with others. See, we're of the same mind of things that really matter. That's what he's talking about here, attitude of believers. The same mindset, the same disposition. In fact, he says in verse 5, have this mind, this same mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In chapter 3, verse 15, Paul said, let those of us who are mature think the same way, have the same attitude. That's what he wants from us. In verse 19, speaking of the world, Paul says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory is their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But we have a different attitude in the church. Our minds are set on the things of the Lord the things that are pure and honest and just and lovely and of a good report. The Bible says, think on these things, Philippians 4.8. So their attitude is controlled by the world and the system around them. And he uses this concept of mind and attitude interchangeably because that's the proper understanding of what he means by being of, uh, of the same mind. Number two, not only being of the same mind, but have the same love. You say, that's impossible. How are we going to have the same love? Well, he's not talking emotionally here, okay? Because we're all over the map with emotions in our love, right? I mean, think about your spouse alone. What was your love level, your emotional love level for your spouse on your wedding day? Okay? What was it on your first, after, after your first date and you really thought, wow, this could be the one? Your emotional love bank was filling up fast, man. Okay? What's the level of your emotional condition for your spouse right now this morning? Well, it depends. I got up, and I put on this white shirt with these pants with my shirt untucked. And Rini said, I think you should tuck it in. And my initial reaction was, No. I don't want to tuck it in. I can tell you my emotional love bank towards my wife at that time, I was making withdrawals. The money was flowing out. It wasn't coming in. And look what I have today. I'm tucked in and I've got a jacket on. Amen. You ladies are happy about that, aren't you? Let me just say it this way. We worked together. She did not have the idea for the jacket, only tucked the shirt in. We worked together 
okay? But it's not about emotional that he's talking about here when he says have the same love. In Romans 12, 10, love one another with brotherly affection. Out, here now he explains it. Outdo one another in showing honor. It's not about emotion. It's about love through service. In other words, be devoted to one another by meeting one another's needs. <coughs> 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother. Now, that's not talking about worldly people. He's talking about Christians hating other Christians. He is a liar. If you say, I love God, and you don't love your brother, serve your brother, care for your brother, you're a liar. You don't love God. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So this is an element of unity, loving everyone the same. And when we don't, the problem is an attitudinal problem. Whenever there's a difference of attitudes, it rises out of a failure to maintain love. That's how conflict takes root among us. It's not a doctrinal issue. It's an issue of not having the same love for everybody in the body. Again, emotionally, you're not going to love everybody here the same. It's okay but you must be willing to serve anybody in this body. You don't pick and choose just the people that you like to serve them. You serve anyone who has a need. What would happen at Vero Bible Fellowship in the sense of our unified efforts if we all came together as a body? And I'm not just talking about coming to a church service. I mean through the week that we hear about needs within our body, and man, we go into action. We don't care who the person is. We don't care if they're wealthy or poor, whether they're white or black, whether they are young or old. I don't care how you want to measure people. In the church of Jesus Christ, there is no distinction between us. We are all equal at the foot of the cross of Christ, and we ought to treat everybody the same. Everybody. And this also doesn't just speak to lay people in the church. It speaks to leaders in the church. Leaders are to love one another without regard to one leader that they like. This is for all of us, everybody. It's, it's a terrible thing when bitterness and envy and jealousy and personal ambition and this, this protection attitude, this possessiveness sometimes even in the church, hostility. It, it, it's all out of a loveless attitude. Guaranteed, if any of those things are happening inside your heart, I'll promise you, you're not serving one another. You're, you're not willing to, to just go to anybody. If you want to get rid of these things, then let Christ do a work in you so that you see the love of Christ that he's given you, and now it compels you to go to whoever has a need. You stop measuring and sizing people up and you just minister because they are your brother or your sister. Period. Amen? amen. You could have amen stronger than that. 
Okay, let me, let me wrap the last two up quick. Be of the same mind, have the same love, being in full accord. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord. Now, what's interesting about that phrase, full accord, it's the only time it's ever used in the whole New Testament. Let me tell you what it means. One sold, S-O-U-L-E-D, one sold. He said back in Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. It's not a capital spirit. It's a small s spirit. That your, your inner being is one with other believers. It's the idea of having harmony at the soul level. We're soul brothers and sisters. Amen. We should be. Soul brothers and sisters. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're my soul brother or sister, whatever they are. You are. Tell somebody. We're all striving for the, the, the things of God, not for our own desires. When somebody has a desire and a passion and a heartfelt hunger to see Jesus Christ Church united and somebody else wants the whole world to know that they've been offended, you're not one. One person is walking in the spirit of Christ, the other's walking in the spirit of the flesh. No room for that in the church. Now look, we can get there quick. Everybody here in the room can get there quick. Don't live there. Don't let it become a pattern in your life that you just revert back to the flesh. You should be growing in Christ. You should be moving beyond that. So Paul said to the church in Corinth in chapter 3, he said, I should be addressing you over spiritual matters, but I have to treat you like you're carnal because you are. You're caught up in jealousy and bitterness, all these things of the flesh. That's what you're walking in. And you're saved. What's wrong with you? He called them out of it. We miss on being in full accord when we give way to the flesh. And lastly, last point, real quick. Being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord, being of one mind. Doesn't that sound like the first one? Being of the same mind, and then number four, being of one mind? Look, it's in your text. That's how you wrote it. It doesn't mean the same thing. It actually means to be, listen, here in this thing, it means being intent on one purpose. The first time he said it, he's talking about attitude. We should all have the same attitude towards one another and towards the work of the Lord. This, now he says, now let's talk about the intent of purpose. Where being of the mind speaks of having the same attitude, this one speaks about us, you and I, having the same intentions toward the work of God. That we should all be committed, listen, to the gospel. We should all be sharing the gospel. We should all participate. One of the things that we were talking about as a staff, and we haven't gone anywhere with it, so boys and staff of Teen Challenge, don't, don't take my words beyond what I'm saying. We would love at some point the opportunity to go to the Teen Challenge's campus. I, I know they can't be there with us by law. They can't be on the campus with us like that in that setting. Send them off to somewhere, SeaWorld. Give them a day at the park or whatever. 
And then we, as the church, go to their campus and we just look at all the little jobs that need to be done. And we, together, with one purpose, help them. That's what we're talking about here. We're together in purpose. Okay? We all have the same intent. What is the real intent of purpose for the church? Advancing the kingdom of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this very simple teaching that Paul gave in the first two verses that are just loaded with understanding about the necessity for unity in the church. And then secondly, this is what it looks like. Father, now you've given us something to measure ourselves by. Our prayer is that the Holy Spirit of God would now speak into each of us individually, showing us where we're falling short of unity in the church. That you would do a work in us, that you would draw us back to your word, that we would grow, that we would mature, that we would develop beyond where we are today, and that we would walk more by the Holy Spirit than by the flesh. Thank you, Father, for loving us. Lord, for those who are here today that maybe are not saved, may they understand, open their eyes to understand that, Jesus, you are God and you came in the flesh to this earth for one purpose, to die for sinners. And there's not a person in this room that hasn't sinned, but there is a distinct difference between us. Some have received by faith Jesus' death on the cross as payment for their sins. Others have not. And without the work of Christ, we are destined for eternal damnation in hell. And we don't say that because we're joyous over it or we're trying to put ourselves above or ahead of others. We say it because it's the truth. That's where the gospel, it offends. If a person's unwilling to see their lost state apart from Christ, that they will never measure up to God, that they will end up in an eternal damnation, then, Father, it is a sad thing. But if any person who hears the gospel who senses the calling of God to respond, to surrender, then, Father, by faith they believe in Jesus. It is a beautiful thing. And they are saved by you, by the work of the Spirit. We thank you, Lord, for that. And pray that this morning in this place there have been those who have been saved. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Now listen, church. Before you leave today, I, I pray that you will practice what we just learned. Find someone you don't know. Don't embarrass them. Don't try to have some long conversation. Just come up and thank them for being here and love them. Find out where they're from. I met somebody before service who lives in New Mexico, and they're here today. You just never know who you're going to meet. That's awesome. So let's, let's be the church, and then do the same for one another. If you see a need, pray with them. Maybe God will lead you to do more than just pray for them, okay? Let's be the church as we, as we make our way out today. God bless you. Thank you, church.